I love that music. I love it. I, uh, okay, do you guys remember back in the 80s, probably into the 90s, on TV they would have the commercials, and it would be a commercial for like a thing, you're going to buy all this, uh, you're going to buy like a bunch of music, and they're going to send you this collection of music, and it'll tell you all of them. They, there was like a bunch of those things. Um, when I was a kid, this is way too tall, um, when I was a kid, my dad uh, bought one that was called Fun Rock. And it was all music from the 60s. And it was in, um, now some of you guys don't know what these are, but they were called cassette tapes. And, uh, and we had, I mean, I wore those tapes out. It had music like, uh, like uh, you know, the song Devil with the Blue Dress? That's a good song. Um, Blue Moon. Um, Hang on, Sloopy. Come on. Hang on, Sloopy. That's a great song. Um, how many people are with me on that? I mean, okay, all right. Um, that's, that's some good music. I wore that stuff out, and I love the music, and partially, I'm sure, because my dad loved it, and it was part of it, but also because it defined a generation, a generation we call the baby boomers, right? Uh, the builders, which we've been in this series called Belong. Um, we started last week, and we're going to be going through four weeks, and we're going to talk each generation. Um, last, year, last week, we talked about the builders. Today, I'm going to talk about baby boomers and then we'll do Gen X, and then we'll do Millennials. Um, and we're kind of taking some music from each of them just, to, just for a little fun. Um, but, but this baby boomer generation um, grew up at, at a specific time. So the builders, uh, they went off to war, World War II. They came back from World War II, and they had babies. They had lots of babies, right? And these babies grew up, and, and they, uh, they ended up being teenagers in the, in the 60s and maybe even into the early 70s. They were the happy days kids, right? Uh, the, the idea that they had the world ahead of them, everybody was optimistic that their, their life was only going to get better. And, that, and that their life would get better because they were going to work harder than anybody else worked. And they did. They figured if they put their head down and they work hard, they can achieve anything they want to achieve. They ran after the American dream. And so they, they worked their way up in their jobs. And they had kids and they bought a house with a picket fence. And, and they, they made sure that they looked good on the outside. But, but man, they were, they were going after it. Going after the American dream. And most of them, a lot of them, for the most part, they achieved it. They made it. They caught the American dream. And, um, and I, I got to say, I, I don't think there's any other character in the Bible who embodies the baby boomer work ethic and drive than a guy named Saul. Now, Saul, uh, there's two Sauls in the Bible. Uh, this isn't the Old Testament Saul. This is the New Testament Saul. He gets a new name, but we'll get there. Um, so Saul... Uh, is a guy who lives at a time, uh, right around the time of Jesus, he, he lives at a time when if you are a kid, you go to school when you're very young. You go to school, you start in school, but school isn't like school is for us. It was religious school. It was, it was training in the scriptures. He was Jewish, and he was, so he would be trained in the scriptures. As a, as a young boy, they would start memorizing the first four books of the Bible. And if you were the best... If you're the best of all the kids, then you get to continue into the next part of schooling. Everybody else goes back and, um, and works with their, in their family trade. But if you're really good, you get to stay. And after a while, once you've stayed a, couple, a few more years, if you're the best of the best, you get to stay a little bit longer. Everybody else goes home. 
And then after a little while, the, the best of the best of the best get chosen by a rabbi. And those people get to follow a rabbi. And that's, that is super, like, that is prestigious. But once you've followed a rabbi for a while, if, if the rabbi thinks you have what it takes, if you are the best of that group, and if he, if he thinks you've got what it takes, and if, he's, if there are people who want to follow you, then you can become a rabbi on your own, a teacher, a Pharisee. And so a Pharisee was the best of the best of the best of the best. And this was Saul. He had it all. I mean, he, he was like, like one track mind, all the way success. He went all the way in his life. He had all of the boxes checked. He had position. He had money. He had power. He had influence. I'm telling you, we don't really think about it because we think of like uh, people who are uh, priests or whatever. We think uh, that's not something people aspire to. But at the time, this was like, this was like this guy was owned a Fortune 500 company. You know what I'm saying? This was this was success. Everybody liked him. Everybody, listen. All the women wanted to marry him. All the dudes wanted to be him. He was it. You ever know anybody like that? You ever know anybody who like, who checks all the boxes? Like who just feels a little annoyingly perfect? Ever been there? Like, like, <laughs> I got a hand raised. I wasn't looking for that. No. Um, but I, you know, just somebody in your life who maybe you, you feel like they've always got, they're always one step ahead. They're all, they've always got more money than you. They've got more friends than you. They've got more confidence than you. Maybe sometimes you feel like they're nicer than you. They've got their stuff together more than you do. They got, their kids are better behaved. You know, all these things. And you look up to them and you think, man, I will never measure up. I'll just ne- Sometimes it's a sibling. Sometimes it's a friend, coworker. I will never measure up. And you feel, uh, maybe you feel less than them. Maybe you feel judged by them. Or maybe you feel judged by yourself for being less than them. It is a, it's a tough life to live in the shadow of somebody you think is better than you. That's a, that's a tough life. And it's, it, it brings us to a place where, you know, this belongs series. As we start this series, as we continue in it, we, um, we're just trying to figure out what it looks like to belong to the kingdom of God, to belong to each other. And, and the truth is there's a problem in belonging to each other and belonging to the kingdom of God. And that problem is that somehow, some way, we have this idea that some people are better than others. Some people are more important than others. Um... It is, it's tough to belong to anything. When you look around you and you think, I'm inferior to everybody around here. If you got this, and I, I know I've, I, I've talked to a lot of you guys. I know sometimes that is just this thing that happens inside of us. Everybody's got it figured out. I'm a mess. Maybe I don't belong. That's a, that is the, the saddest place when a church 
feels like it's too good for anybody to belong. And we never want to be that. We'll get back to that. But I want to, I want to stick on Saul for just a minute here because Saul was there. He thinks he had life figured out. I mean, he thought he was on top of the food chain. He knew he had life by the, (laughs) he'd taken life by the horns. Um, until he didn't. Because maybe you know Saul's story. So Saul's a Pharisee. And he's not just a Pharisee. He, so he's, he was the best of the best of the best of the best of the best. Ends up being really important. But, but it was more than that. He was what we would call zealous. He, he had this thing, this drive inside of him. He believed in his cause so much. And that cause was the Judaism that he understood in the day. He believed in that system so much, he would do anything to protect it. And at this time, there was this group of people who were, who were a threat to what he knew to be true about God. And there was this group of people, who these crazy people, who, believe, who, who followed this crazy dude who um, said he was the son of God. He was, he was executed by the Romans. And then obviously they must have stolen the body or something because they've been telling everybody that he rose from the dead, which is crazy. But the problem is, they're getting a lot of followers. And so, so Saul, being completely dedicated to the, to the cause that he believed was true, dedicated to his God, decided it was his job to rid Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of this crazy group of people who were leading people astray. And so he, would do, he was ruthless. He would do whatever it took to silence this new group of followers of this Jesus. So, um, it, along the way, we probably heard this story. Uh, he decided he was going to go to another city, city up in Syria, called Damascus. And he was going to go up there, and he was going to root out the, the believers there. And he was on his way, and, um, and he was interrupted. That's a kind word for it. He was, he, he was confronted by that same Jesus that he was persecuting. Jesus appeared to him on the road. And I don't mean like he had a dream. I mean like physically something happened on that road. A bright light came, voice came, and Jesus basically says to him, you think you've got life figured out. You don't. You think you know who I am. You don't. And so this this encounter that Jesus has with Saul is mind-bending for him. Life ch- Actually, he ends up blind. His companions walk him into the city, find one of these people that he was going to go and persecute. That guy prays for him, and the, and the scales fall from his eyes, and he can see again. And all of a sudden, for Saul, everything changed. What he thought mattered three days ago doesn't matter anymore. He thought he knew. But here's the deal. That's, that's what the gospel does to you. When you are confronted, when you and I are confronted by the reality of Jesus, that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus really does exist and interact with us, that Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death on a cross, was buried in the grave, raised to life, and appeared to his apostles. That's the gospel. When we really understand that, it should radically alter the way that we see our world. 
It should radically reorient our priorities. The gospel creates this moment where we should realize that what we thought mattered before it doesn't matter anymore. Um, when I was uh, a new parent, Abra was like two years old. And we sat down at dinner. Actually, we were at my uh, in-law's house. Sat down at dinner, and she had, we had cooked carrots on her plate. She loved cooked carrots, but she just decided, you know, she didn't want to eat them. Because she's two. That's what two-year-olds do, right? Um, and I, I, I'm a new parent, but I think I know what I'm doing. I've seen parenting before. It's not that hard. And so I, uh, we're sitting at the table, and she's being, you know, a stinker about the carrots. And I say something that I immediately regretted. We are not leaving this table until those carrots are gone. But every parent in the room knows the mistake I just made, right? It's like, I'm going to die on the hill of carrots? Is that really what matters the most to me right now? But that's it. Once you say it, you can't go back on it, right? Because when you draw a line in the sand, you got to hold on to it, especially a two- or three-year-old kid, you know? You can't explain later. Well, I wasn't. No, no, no. They got to know. So here we are. But what I didn't really understand was the staying power of a two-year-old. You know what I'm saying? Like, you think, I can wait them out. Well, two hours later, two hours of screaming later, here we are. We still sit. And I think, what? why did I care so much about carrots? Like, what, what was I thinking? It's because, you know, the truth is, I thought I knew. I thought I knew how to parent. I thought I knew what mattered in that moment. But I'll tell you, about 90 minutes in, I thought, if I had a time machine, I would go back and put a sock in my mouth. Because I thought this mattered, but it doesn't really matter. And the truth is, I think we've all been in places like that, where, where we thought we knew what mattered. Something happened that helped us realize we didn't have a clue. And it's a lot bigger than cooked carrots. Maybe, um, maybe it was your uh, kid who came home and said, I'm struggling with addiction. You just think about that. And everything instantaneously, everything gets reoriented in your life. Everything gets reordered. What really matters? What do I spend my time on? The love of a kid who's struggling with addiction reorients your whole world. Or you go to the doctor. And, um, you know, God forbid, she says, uh, you got the big C. And all of a sudden, right there, in that moment, you get a diagnosis that changes all of your priorities. What you thought mattered yesterday doesn't matter nearly as much today. It happens all the time. I think it uh, happened for a lot of baby boomers about 10 years ago. They spent their entire life getting ready for retirement. You know, building up their nest egg, building up their 401k, pulling together their, the, their retirement so that they could rest easy. And then everything, the bottom came out from under the stock market and people lost everything. And they realized this thing that they thought mattered so much was fleeting. 
And now they have to reorient their whole lives. Happened for a lot of people. And, and the truth is, that's where Saul was in that moment. He had given his life to something that instantaneously he realized it didn't matter. And so um, I want to spend the, the rest of our time today looking at a couple of things that he wrote. Now Saul, at this point, because his life changed forever, he also got a new name. And he became Paul, right? He's the apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. Um, so he, he, uh, he wrote a lot of things down. And we could get his new perspective, this new understanding that he has from a lot of different places. But I'm just going to look at two things. Because these two things actually seem to contradict each other. But I think they will end up taking us to a place where we understand for him what really mattered. So, we're going to start in Philippians chapter 3. And here's the first thing he says. This is Paul. Same guy. Same best of the best of the best of the best guy, right? He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in themselves, I have more. Wow. All right. Paul thinks pretty highly of himself. And then he goes on to explain why. Because, and this is Jewish culture, remember? So here are all the Jewish reasons why he has uh, reasons to put confidence in himself. First, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, the best of the best. As for zeal, I was the one who persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Woo! A Paul right here, he's saying, when it comes to religion... I got that down. I am as religious as they come. And at the, at the culture that he would speak this in, religious equals good. Do you hear what I'm saying? If you're religious, that means you're good. And then he, he writes this. He writes this to his friend Timothy. And he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Hmm? But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Here's the deal. These two scriptures together, Paul is, or Paul is saying this. I am both the most religious and the worst sinner. I am both the most religious and the worst sinner. You know, it, I, don't, I don't think we have to, it's not shocking that religion doesn't equal goodness, right? I mean, just, I, I don't say this flippantly, but talk to anyone who grew up in a, in a church where the priest or the pastor or the leader took advantage of them when they were young. They'll tell you, religious, religious doesn't equal good. 
It's, it, it's the same way that we know that looking good is not the same as being good. How many times have you known somebody who on the outside feels like they have it all together? They've got all the, the boxes checked, and yet somehow, some way, deep down inside, they are just as messed up as everybody else. How many televangelists have preached against a bunch of things that they end up, we end up finding out they were involved in themselves? Looking good and being good are two different things. And if we go down just one more level, just the concept of being good, the Bible's pretty clear. Ain't nobody good. I hope, I, I hope I'm not the first to break this to you. But you're not good. I'm not good. Mother Teresa, not good. There was only one who ever was good. And the ones who were pretending to be good killed him. Nobody is good. We got to get that out from under us. We're a mess. We are all in desperate need of forgiveness. Nobody's good. And so maybe you walk into church sometimes and you look around And you see all these people who feel like they have it together. Or you look up on stage and you see Steph, who sings and leads us in worship, who's fantastic. And she's she's got a smile on her face and her hands are raised. And you think, she's got something I don't have. She's got her life together. Or you, you look at Kellen and he comes up here and he preaches. And he's got a great family. He's got a good life put together. He's a, he, he's a really great leader. He's a good preacher. He has got this Christian thing licked, right? He's got it figured out. Here's what I, I just, I can't be more clear than this. There is not one person on the stage or in leadership or serving in this church who has got a better handle on loving Jesus and following him than you do. You think everybody else has got it figured out because nobody's honest. But we're all just struggling. We're all just figuring it out. Not one person in this place is better or more important than anybody else. And it is that, that sounds like an easy thing to believe. But for some reason, it is so hard to believe down here. Uh, Paul, another time, he said this. So in Christ Jesus, you all, he's talking about you all, me, us all. You all are children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, who were baptized into Christ, Christ have clothed, clothed yourselves with Christ. Now listen to this. He's talking about us. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He knew the people who were reading this, and he knew that in their mind, Jews were better than Gentiles. They were racist. In their mind, free people were better than slaves. In their mind, men were superior to women. They were sexist. And Paul is saying, I know that's the world you live in. That's not what the church is supposed to look like. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. I love that he says, nor is there male and female. Because, you know, I think uh, 
for the most part, the church has done some real work on some of that other stuff. But um, male and female stuff, I think, is still kind of messed up in the way the capital C church thinks about women. Uh, you know, there's a... It's Mother's Day. I really didn't plan on talking about this on Mother's Day. But I, I got into this scripture, and that's what, I think that's what God wants me to, I want, God wants me to say something about this. And um, I believe that the church has gotten this stuff wrong for 2,000 years. Um, I believe that the church, for, for 2,000 years, we know that... Um, that the culture that's around us impacts the church, and the church turns around and impacts the culture. That's happened uh, for, for centuries. It happened with racism. The church, can we just be honest? For centuries, the church of Jesus Christ was racist, right? Can we just be real about that? And then, thank God that God brought along leaders who helped us to see we were wrong. And by we, I don't mean you, not you personally. I mean the church was wrong. Racism, bigotry, all of those things. Thank God, God brought leaders that helped us see that we were wrong and the church has been changing. And thank God the church has been changing. But I got to say, um, okay, I'm off script, I don't, but I'm going to keep going. Uh-uh. I got to say that um, I believe that sexism is the last socially acceptable form of bigotry in our culture right now. Um, you know, if you, if you tell a racist joke, somebody's going to, if you tell a racist, racist joke in public, hopefully somebody's going to, you know, stand up to you. If you, if you say something terrible about disabled people, somebody's going to stand up to you. In our culture, people say sexist stuff all the time. Nobody even thinks about it. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I thought about this. Uh, a week ago, I was hanging out with my friend, just laughing, joking. He did something kind of silly, stupid, and I said, you're such a girl. Right? That's a sexist thing to say. It just is. And I didn't, the truth was, I wasn't trying to be sexist. I don't want to be sexist. But there is something in me that has been shaped by my culture that says that that's an okay thing to say. That my culture has conditioned me that that's an okay thing to do. And I'm, I just, I, I, that's not an excuse. But I think it's something that it's good for us to know so that we can change it. So that we can do something about it. And I just, okay, we're going to take a minute. Men, this is you and me. Let's be honest with ourselves. There's still some stuff in us. Maybe the way we grew up. Maybe uh, movies that we watched. Books that we read. Things that our parents taught us. But deep down, we've still got some of these sexist ways inside of us. And I think there is something, um, I think it's a, it's a moment, today could be a moment that we say, um, I'm going gonna, 
I'm going to look hard at that. I'm going to be honest with myself about it. I don't pretend that I'm going to fix all of this cultural conditioning this week, but at least I'm going to do something about it. I mean, what, a better, what better not day to say something about it? I honestly didn't plan this for Mother's Day, I promise. Um, but what better day to say something about it? For you and me, men, to say nothing's going to change unless we change it, unless we decide to be different. The stuff that goes through our heads needs to change. All right. Okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox for a minute. Um, But it's all a part of this. Paul had this idea of what church would be. That there's nobody better than anybody else. That there aren't places for men and places for women. And for us, it it looks different. Uh, Sometimes sometimes we think, uh, oh, hey, here's this guy who's been in church his whole life, and he knows all of of the scripture, and here's a new believer who doesn't really know much. He must be a better Christian than that new believer. Or this woman can't teach because she's a woman. A man can teach. Or somebody walks forward and, and gives their lives to Jesus, makes a commitment, but you realize that person is addicted to um, prescription medication. And you think, is that real? Does that count as much as a person who isn't? There's this ideal that Paul had that we would have a church where everybody is the same, where not one person is more important than another. We're still working. Here's the thing. That is the heartbeat of our church. Please don't get me wrong. That is the heartbeat. I would love it if our church was all the way that way. But I just want to be honest. I don't know that we are yet. I still think we're working to get there, and that's okay. But the heartbeat of our church is to be a place where no matter what color your skin is, no matter what your background is, no matter what gender you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's been done to you, you not only belong here, but you are a part, you are an equal member. You are just as important as anybody else. That's, man, that's the place that I want to lead. That's the place I want to belong. That's the place Paul described. And so, there is no difference between a guy like me. I grew up on the mission field. My dad was a missionary. And then by the time I was 18, I was already in ministry. And I've been in ministry for the last almost 25 years. And then there's a, there's a girl who came to our church just a couple of months ago and gave her life to Jesus. Doesn't know much about it. Hasn't figured out any of it. There is absolutely no difference in the importance of her and the importance of me to the kingdom of God and the life of this church. Nobody's more important than anybody else. Okay, I've said all those things. I want you to walk away with two things. Number one, you are more important to this church and the kingdom of God than you know. Uh, No matter what you have done in your life, just like Paul, I mean, Saul, when he was Saul, he was killing Christians. No matter what you've done in your life, there is available to you a place in the kingdom that is just as important as the Apostle Paul himself. No matter what kind of shame you've got, no matter what kind of pain you've been through, no matter what kind of brokenness you feel like you bring to the party, every single person in this room has a purpose. And that purpose is to belong to the kingdom of God to the people of God. 
That's the first one. You are more important to this church and the kingdom of God than you know. And it gets to the second one, which is a little more difficult. Stop making excuses. There is no just in the kingdom. And by just, I mean, I, I've heard people say it. I'm just a fill in the blank, right? I, I've, heard, I've heard people say, what if somebody came to you and said, well, I'm just a mom. I'm just a mom. Let's think about that. I'm just a mom. So what you're, what you're saying is what you do with your children isn't as important. So maybe you look at me and I'm standing up here and I'm talking and I'm going to talk to about 150 people this weekend. And, um, and then they're going to go home and then two days later, they're probably not going to remember any of it. Or you spend your life building into these people and you're turning these children into something that are that that is like the people God meant them to be. Which one is more important? The reality is neither. There's no ranking in the kingdom of God. Somebody walks up to me and says, "Well, I like to serve at church, but I'm just a greeter. I'm just a greeter." And I say to them, "Here's what I know." I know that for somebody who comes to church for the first time, how they feel is just as important as what they hear. And so that moment when they walk in and they get that warm handshake and somebody walks them to the kids' works area or or tells them that they're glad to see them, that may be the most important thing that they experience when they walk in the door. There is no just in the kingdom of God. There's no I'm just a greeter. I've heard people say to me, I'm just a factory worker. I'm just a hairstylist or a manager or I just work at Granger, which half of you do, or what, you know, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I, I'm just this, I just do this job. But here's what we know. We know that nobody is defined by what they do. Every, uh, that's not rocket science, right? Nobody's defined by what they do. But the question really is, who are you when you do what you do? Who are you when you do what you do? And I know that the first response that a lot of people want to give is, I'm a pretty good person. Like, I I try to be a good person at work. I try to be nice. I try to be kind. I try to, and the reality is, that's the wrong answer. If If your answer to the question, who are you when you do what you do, is like, I try to be good, that's not the answer we're going for when we're following Jesus. The right answer is this. Who are you when you do what you do? Who who am I? I belong to Jesus. I belong to the kingdom of God. I belong to his church. I'm not perfect, but I am exactly who God made me to be. And I'm running after that with everything I've got. That's the answer. I belong. It's not I'm good. It's that I belong. I, I have a place. Can I tell you something? I believe this to be true. There is no one in the world that God loves more than you. You might look up to other people. You might think they got it together. There is not one other person in the world that God loves more than you do, than he loves you. I'll take it a step further. There's not one other person in the world that God is prouder of than he is of you. 
is. He loves you perfectly. He made you to be who you are. He's proud of you. And he made you to belong. Because everybody is the same in this place. Nobody's more important than anybody else. Everybody belongs. Let's pray.